Welcome to Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. I'm Trevor Perry Giles, the Executive Director of the National Communication Association. The National Communication Association is the preeminent scholarly association devoted to the study and teaching of communication. Founded in 1914, NCA is a thriving group of thousands from across the nation and around the world who are committed to a collective mission to advance communication as an academic discipline. In keeping with NCA's mission to advance the discipline of communication, NCA has developed this podcast series to expand the reach of our member scholars' work and perspectives. This is Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. Today's episode of Communication Matters focuses on a special issue of NCA's Journal of International and Intercultural Communication. The subcontinent speaks intercultural communication perspectives from and on South Asia. Guest co-editor Shanak Sastri and Srivi Ramasubramanian join me today to discuss this special issue. First, a little background about our guests. Dr. Shanak Sastri is an associate professor of communication at the University of Cincinnati. Dr. Srivi Ramasubramanian is a professor of communication and presidential impact fellow and an affiliated professor of women's and gender studies and director of difficult dialogues on campus race relations at Texas A&M University. Hey, Shanak and Srivi, thanks you for joining us and welcome to Communication Matters. Thanks for the opportunity, Trevor. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Before we get into the contents of the issue itself, I'd love to hear a little bit about why you decided to organize this special issue. What were your hopes and dreams for putting together a special issue of this kind? So I'll take this one, Srivi, if that's okay. So there's an interesting backstory to this. So the seed for the special issue were germinated actually at a conference at the NCA summer conference in Beijing. You know, the biannual summer conference that the NCA has organized with the Communication University of China for about three times now. And so I was at this conference having lunch next to Todd Sandel, who is the outgoing editor of the journal. And uh, I was discussing with him my, my work on health and migration in India and we were just kind of chatting about, you know, I've published in the journal before and Todd said something interesting. He said, you know, even though there have been quite a few authors from South Asia who published kind of independently in the journal, there really hasn't been sort of a concerted effort to highlight research from this area. And I can't remember if it was me or him who first suggested that, but we kind of, the conversation moved towards the idea of, you know, maybe we should think or, or do a preliminary analysis of like who's publishing from, from this area, like what is the scholarship that's, that's out there. At the end of that conversation, I wrote an email and he said, well, you know, what do you want to do with it? And so at that point, I contacted Shivi and asked her if she would be interested in joining on the project. And when, during, when we had our first discussion, I think that's when we kind of thought about how do we broaden the discourse on South Asia? You know, because South Asia is a broader kind of thing than just scholarship from India. And that's kind of, that's how the ball started rolling. And when uh, Shanak approached me, I was really excited about this project. Like he said, there's been work here and there about South Asia, intercultural, international, international intercultural communication, but there hasn't been like a full special issue. I haven't seen that in any of the NCA, ICA journals. So that was an exciting opportunity for us to 
curate and invite multiple voices. And we want to kind of showcase the multiple and contested and conflicting understandings of South Asia that complicates the discourse on, on that region. I'm sure glad you did. I think it makes for a really interesting special issue. And in the introduction, you all write about the special terminology for the issue. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about the terms that you're using there and what makes them special and what geographic areas are you particularly referring to for the purposes of the special issue? A lot of times, like South Asia is used interchangeably with India. And we were kind of Mm -hmm. wanting to be deliberate about including other, all the aspects of South Asia, whether it's Afghanistan or Bangladesh or Bhutan or, you know, Myanmar, Nepal. So all Pakistan, Sri Lanka, all of these places, we wanted to welcome those perspectives in. Of course, it was hard to bring all of those in, but certainly we wanted to make a deliberate move. So when we talked about like the subcontinent speaks, we were specifically referencing the entire geographic region, but it's not just about the geographic region. It's also more like the political aspects of of South Asia. It's about the socioeconomic, cultural, power relationships, all of those in that region and how they manifest themselves. Is there something there about how they differ too across the various nation states that make up this geographic region? The term Indian subcontinent is often often used interchangeably with South Asia, right? So one is a more geological term, right? It it refers to this chunk of land that kind of crashed into the Asian continent, right? It's geological. But South Asia is a more political term, right? It's used to refer to the current dynamics between the nation states that occupy this geographical area. So that includes the, the largest, India, right? But also Pakistan and Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bangladesh, Bhutan, and the Maldives. So what is interesting, though, is so like, for example, a regional cooperation organization like NATO, in South Asia, there are associations like there's one called SARC, which is the South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation, Hmm. which is basically a multilateral organization that does kind of the lobbying, multilateral kind of organizing work. It has the importance of SARC politically in the region has reduced as compared to the 80s and 90s, but they still have these regular kind of meetings where they talk about regional cooperation. So in that sense, South Asia is a more coherent political unit. It's more recognizable as, you know, it it indexes a particular relationship between nation states. We um, could now turn, I suspect, to the actual issue itself and the articles that are contained there. You received 80 abstract submissions for the special issue, which is remarkable. And then you solicited full-length manuscripts from 10 authors, and ultimately six were selected for the issue. It'd be nice if we could talk about each of these articles, because I suspect that they're all quite interesting and tell us a great deal about what's going on in international intercultural communication within South Asia, the Indian subcontinent, the subcontinent, or whatever terminology we want to use. Let's start with Basniat's article. Mm-hmm. So Basniat's uh, article, you know, tackles this dual identity of being a sex worker as well as a mother. And this is really fascinating. In, in the, it's in the Nepali context. So it brings in sort of identity, 
health work and also this notion of structural stigma and looks at how things like poverty shape family relationships and she takes an intersectional approach in doing a critical analysis of interviews with sex workers so this is a really excellent piece it's cutting edge and it's i just love how this piece engages with health communication from a very feminist perspective and i, I love that approach how does that relate do you think to Kaur Gill and Mohan Dutta's article, which also looks at working and health-related issues and migrant domestic workers in India, Singapore, Noida. A key concept that they write about is communicative erasure. And I'm curious about the similarities, perhaps, and the differences and what that term means and the nuances that they try to capture in their article. It seems to follow on from this discussion of sex workers and the dual roles with motherhood and the like. So I think this is a piece that has comes out of ethnographic work that they both have been doing independently. And so what they're doing in this piece is kind of bringing some of that data together. So they're both working, have had long-term projects with domestic workers, Mohan in India and Satwir in Singapore. And what they're doing here is trying to kind of build parallels with the experiences of domestic workers in Noida, in India, near Delhi, it's a suburb of New Delhi, and in Singapore. And given the racial dynamics of how domestic work is organized in Singapore, most domestic workers are immigrants, and a considerable chunk of them are Indian origin immigrants. And so in this piece, what they're trying to do is, when they work, this, this idea of communicative erasure is really trying to get at how domestic workers, both in India and in Singapore, are sort of systematically wiped off the slate in terms of their access to means of communication, right? So whether this is in terms of domestic abuse, whether this is in terms of uh, lack of even the most basic employment, safeguards, safety, hazard pay, overtime, you know, all of these kind of basic elements that make up the bare minimum framework for domestic work. So what they're trying to get at with this term, I think, and the way I read it, was just how structures, both legal, bureaucratic, but also social and cultural structures, work to deprive or cleave access from platforms, communicative platforms. And I guess that's what they mean by erasure. It seems particularly timely now as I noted that the COVID pandemic resurged a bit in Singapore, but then when you dug deeply, it mostly resurged among the domestic worker population. Yeah, this is, this is very timely given the COVID epidemic and the resurgence of the epidemic in Singapore, precisely because of all the narratives that one hears about Singapore being this sort of this real great Asian, Asian experiment, you also see under the surface you scratch the surface and you see pretty sort of flagrant violations of very basic human rights that domestic workers have. They complain of living in conditions that are squalid. And in, in some sense, it kind of, their narratives have always pointed out to how they were more vulnerable to things like mm-hmm. COVID. Switching gears a little bit, Azetta Hatef and Tanner Cook's article is a political economic analysis of Afghani media, which is really fascinating because it sort of manifests the breadth that you all sought for in this issue. And it takes into consideration the relationships among the state, the media, and economic power. In particular, 
these authors examine how the U.S. government's strategy of winning hearts and minds. Boy, this is something right out of old Vietnam War history. Or Wham, That's right. In Afghanistan and how Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation invested in the Moby Group, which is one of the largest media companies in Afghanistan. Shrevi, you probably are, are right on top of this. What are some of the implications of this particular article? So for us, we were really thrilled to get this piece, an opportunity to review and, and, and publish this because we felt it was really timely. And there are also very few articles that take a political economic approach to studying South Asia. So that was also something that was really unique about this perspective. So, you know, with this WAM, winning hearts and minds strategy, really we're looking at concepts like uh, agenda setting and how even a private media conglomerate like Murdoch's, the Moby group that they're using as the case study, it serves as, as a way of being part of the neo, neoliberal uh, project of the U.S.'s role in Afghanistan and how do we understand this in, in within intercultural communication. So it was, it's a piece that's bringing together intercultural communication about Afghanistan, which is a fairly underrepresented area within even South Asian studies. And we're looking at it from media systems perspectives, media conglomerates, consolidations, and how, how those influence how the politics in Afghanistan has been changing. I'm really impressed with the breadth and, I guess, multi-theoretical, multi-methodological approach to all of these articles that you all managed to solicit and to ultimately publish in this issue. I think it's really, really beneficial to the discipline and to the study of international and intercultural communication. Along those lines, Menakshi Gigi Durham's article addresses a hip-hop artist, MIA's 2007 album Kala. Um, mm -hmm. I remember this. <laughs> MIA used this sampling to capture different types of sounds. And it's mm -hmm. my understanding that this essay complicates this use of sampling in Kala by suggesting that the album both resists narratives about the war on terror as it simultaneously appropriates cultural products. Can you tell me a little bit about Durham's analysis of the Kala album, Shanak, maybe? Sure. So this is, yeah, this is a great piece to edit. Partly because I went back and forth with the author, say, you know, because I, I love this album. So it's, it's really funny because I, I actually like MIA. And I was like, no, no, you got to really get into the analysis of the lyrics because she's saying all these things. But it was great to see because the author, Minakshi Durham, she was like, no, no, I don't want to look at the content because everyone does content. She, she, her focus was clearly on the conditions of production, right? So what made her or what are the conditions through which this album was produced? So, you know, MIA, her title, her name, her, her eponymous title is, she calls herself MIA because she is the child of a guerrilla warrior from the LTTE, the Lankan Tamil Tigers Elam, which is like this insurgent group in Sri Lanka and who went missing in action. So a lot of her work, her, the politics of her work, her, politics of her work are kind of have to do with imperialism, with civil struggle. And so she kind of in 2000, I want to say it was 2003, where she was temporarily banned entrance into the, the US. She was denied a visa because her work was considered to be 
subversive, seditious. There was this element of anti-American interest in, in the post-9-11 kind of environment. So in this album, she's really doing what Minakshi Dharam is calling a differential movement. She's kind of challenging the status quo of the hip-hop, the standard studio model, right? So she's sampling, but she's sampling from like underground kind of sources, but underground in a kind of global South sense, right? So she's working with artists and local folk musicians from across the globe. But as she's doing it, so and I think, I think what is great about this essay is this is not a simple idea of collage, but what, what Dharam is suggesting is that uh, what, what line do we start talking about cultural appropriation if the artists themselves are from the global south and they claim to be representing these, you know, these diasporas? But even as this movement was differential, MIA was still the sole beneficiary of the proceeds of the album, right? So, so she's going back and forth between, on the one hand, the subversion of this album and the way it was produced, but on the other hand, how do we as post-colonial critical scholars understand or challenge this idea of uh, bricolage or collage when it comes at the risk of taking from cultures that do not get represented in that discourse? Did it have you see MIA differently? Well, you know, I don't know. I think I see the album differently. I really like MIA, but I think having read this, when I went back and heard the album, and I was, I've been starting thinking about, is this a reference to what Dharam was saying in this particular instance. So it's cool. It's, it's, it's nerdy, but cool. Yeah, but that's what's supposed to happen, right? That's what good critical analysis right. does. Exactly. That's right. That's right. The next article looks at and really brings up a lot of similarities, I think, between right-wing criticism of mainstream news in the United States and right-wing criticism and criticism of right-wing news in India. Bhatt and Chadha discuss opindia.com, which probably many listeners may not be familiar with. It's a right-wing news site in India. Do you have any thoughts, Srivi, about the similarities and differences between this site and right-wing news sites in the United States and, and what that can tell us about the criticism of right-wing news? Yeah, I think that uh, this piece is, again, very timely and relevant, considering that there is a rise of like populism and authoritarianism. So I think that this piece actually talks a lot about this anti-media sentiment and populism that's on the rise. And this is something that I think the U.S. also can easily re- relate to some of these ideas. In some ways, like Op India goes a step further than even what we see elsewhere. I don't even think there is a pretense of this being news, right? Mm. So it's like Indian Stormfront. It is very unabashedly Hindu nationalist, even though it never uses the term, right? And it's it's discourse. I think one one of the moves that the authors are making here is that when they say that the focus is not as much as the news but their targets are other journalists who are covering news. So it's really anti-media in that sense, as Shri was saying, because the focus of their attention is always other media, like mainstream media, right? So they're, they're totally the, the mainstream media sucks because they don't tell you the real truth about blah, 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 right? Hmm. And so, but there's been no attention at all, scholarly attention on right-wing populism in the news Mm-hmm. outside of a Fox News perspective. Right? So we know a lot about how Fox News works. Op India, it's in some ways follows 
the global trend of of like sort of right the right wing populism, but it's different in that it very explicitly uses an anti mainstream media stance as a majority of its content. So they're really interested in saying there is no credibility of the quote unquote mainstream journalist. This is the truth, and so that is their their modus operandi. Yes, Shiv, do you agree? Is that? Yeah, I'd agree, and you know, so most of it content, like the this paper analyzes, it talks about how a lot of the content is about you know highlighting media so-called mistakes and talking about how mainstream news is fake, and you know, also just naming journalists, shaming them, and kind of accusing them of unethical behaviors or hmm. malicious. Right malicious intent or using fake data so those are the kinds of approaches and also just apart from individual journalists they also kind of the entire uh, media system so they would kind of position it as partisan and and uh-huh. elitist which is interesting because you know i mean that's like not reflecting much about their own position in the whole establishment so to speak so this piece kind of highlights in many ways some theoretical perspectives on media within political systems and the roles that they serve but in uh, there is something unique about this in terms of how they approach this through a certain angle which is like the entire framework or the entire rationale for this media outlet is basically talking about how like the media is biased against or the western media is biased against india and hindus and how indian media the mainstream media yeah the you know how the, the 87% population of india who are hindu are severely marginalized by this liberal <laughs> it's, it's, you know it's 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 that discourse and and, and so and, and the reason i i was very interested in this piece is because i think what the what the authors are are not making that the immediate kind of connection so hey look this is like what this is what right wing populism is in other countries but they're saying that there might be something that is different here and i think i think this naming and shaming of journalists is it's a it's a particularly interesting and i feel pretty very typical like indian kind of process and in where it becomes it's not the e- event anymore it's not about what is being reported it becomes the person that is the focus of the journalism which is just an interesting move to uh, to analyze it's also a move that the current president of the united states is fond of <laughs> fond of taking right that's right uh, not to that's be too right. us centric about this but uh, i am struck by those no things. i you, you are right i mean the parallels are there obviously there 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 are there are very obvious parallels to this you know where it where it becomes individualized and you know the the failing new york times or whatever right the focus of the film Margarita with a Straw. I've never heard of this movie. So it's an Indian film about a woman with cerebral palsy who pursues a same-sex relationship. What do you think this study contributes to a sort of South Asian or subcontinental approach to disability and queer studies, intersectionality, that sort of thing? This is my first time being an editor. And boy do you learn when you are in this position i mean i had learned so much from this piece and you know and when you have these young critical scholars who are like throwing jargon at you and you're like no 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 hold on i need to read 
three things before I can respond intelligently. So you can read this film as a text about disability. You can read this film as a text about queerness. What the authors want to do is bring these two together and think about how, what it means for someone who is disabled to, to be always read as straight or cis. Or, and on the flip side, what, what it means for someone who is, also, who is queer to be also sort of always by default be considered able-bodied, right? Mm -hmm. So there is this, there are these assumptions in both queer studies and disability studies about cis-heteronormativity and able-bodiedness. And so they are trying to work these two together. And there is scholarship from non-Indian context and non-South Asian context on the intersections between these two areas of work. But I think what, what they do well in this piece is they also think about particular caste and locational kind of cues that this protagonist is offering in this film, right? So what allows this, this figure, for instance, to travel, to access transnational locations, to travel around the world, to college in the U.S.? You have all these dynamics that make up the narrative of the film. Sounds really interesting. They also talk about like the the neoliberal aspects of of this whole movie, which which you know the, it's the social class and the ability right. to to be able to to you know have these experiences has has to be also be seen through the lens of the economical and, and political angles in terms of how privilege operates and oppresses some uh, more than others. So in many ways, in this particular story that they're analyzing, the neoliberalism kind of makes the focus all about the independence or individualism. And it's about like how determined this person is to get uh, over some of these structural issues that are socially constructed, right? So so in, in some ways, they, they question how uh, privilege operates in these kind of interesting market logics in terms of reproducing itself in the context of sexualities and disabilities. So, so there's the queerness of disabilities aspect to it, but there's also this neoliberal angle that they approach it from that is very interesting and important. And like Shanak says, even critical disability studies that looks at queerness is pretty rare in our field. And then to for that to be located within the South Asian context and the neoliberal values and how it's connected to that, I think that makes it a really, really, you know, important piece that helps us to kind of theorize about these and apply them in, 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 in other, uh, take them to other contexts as well, you know, so uh, that's what I really liked about this this place in terms of how the histories of colonialism, nationalism, race, migration, all of these have to be examined within the, even as we look at queer um, intimacies within a particular story. So this caregiver romance that's, you know, it's about care work and empathy work, and how does that happen within within a, a relationship where there are power imbalances. So those kinds of notions are, you know, they go, go beyond this particular film, but they're also very, uh, they disrupt heteronormativity and able-bodiedness, uh, but also overall uh, neoliberal values. 
sounds fascinating. I, I'm looking forward to reading it more carefully. Shonak said that one of the things that he got from this entire experience was a real education, uh, the broadening of perspective and orientation. That is the experience of editing this special issue. Anything that you all think has developed from this special issue that tells us something about the future of uh, the study of communication and scholarship about communication and South Asia particularly and the, the subcontinent particularly? Any speculations that you might have about where we're going in the future? I mean, the experience of putting together this piece has been, like Shanaka said, it's, it's a, been a huge learning experience. It also provides a space for others to see the varied approaches, the multi-perspectival approaches to South Asia by complicating how we look at this region. It uh, therefore makes space for thinking about this region and about intercultural communication as a whole in a broader sense and how it relates to many other aspects of communication scholarships, right? So it allows us to see like the, the patterns, textured patterns within South Asia through the lens of various methodologies and various theoretical perspectives. It also offers a space within intercultural scholarship as a whole to uh, think about how we can, we can bring in like health communication or political economy or news analysis into studying a particular regions. So, you know, we, we would love to see, for instance, um, scholars take up other regions of the world it was such an excellent experience for us to edit this, and we were, we would love for others to to be able to have that experience. Mm. Also, we we formed a huge network of of scholars mm. in just in terms of those who submitted pieces, those who helped us review them. Those have interestingly led to some panels and ideas for collaborations that would not have otherwise come up, I think. I mean, maybe they would have in other ways, but I think this piece kind of served as a catalyst to get some of those conversations going. And I think it gives us a space to, to reconsider what South Asia means within, within international communication scholarship or communication scholarship as a whole. And it's more an invitation to continue this engagement in a serious way with this topic in terms of thinking about what is rigorous communication scholarship and rigorous intercultural communication scholarship. And certainly we would say this set of pieces represents that. So in, in many ways, it we've been having questions about what is meritorious, what is excellence in, in communication. And a lot of it is driven by like a Euro-American, US-centric model. So I think that a special issue like this kind of helps us appreciate the breadth of communication scholarship, right? And helps us to kind of decenter it from a Euro-US-centered lens. And it helps us to think of other ways of you know, approaching, thinking about rigor and excellence so in those ways, we are hoping that this is not just about representational politics or geopolitics, but I think the piece we're hoping means much more in terms of what communication can be or is 
So we are hoping that even though we are US based and we, you know, of course we have, uh, we look back at this issue and think about, you know, yes, there are many things that we, we still didn't have an article about Pakistan or, or Bangladesh, right? Like, or about Myanmar. So, you know, there are things that there's so much work. So we think of this as the beginning in many ways of new possibilities. Yet we want to acknowledge all of the the people who came before us who helped us get to this point because it just didn't happen without their uh, groundwork. Shivin and I tried very hard to make sure that when we had people who, to get reviewers who were from the region or who knew about the region. And that kind of also showed us that there is so much, there are so many people doing this work. Mm-hmm. It's just that they are not organized under a narrow umbrella of either like comp study, some of them some, some of them are in journalism, some of them are in kind of these allied fields, right? I think one of the things, and I think as what Shavi said, as we, diver, we diversify and, and kind of open the field, what, I think what we'll realize is that a lot of what we know about intercultural conflict or intercultural communication is, is, is still presumes the U.S. as the unmarked category, right? And then so we know U.S.-China communication, U.S.-Japan communication, blah, 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 or intercultural communication from the West versus the South Asia. Hopefully, and I don't think we went all the way with, with this effort, in, we didn't have the bandwidth to do that yet, but this perhaps opens the door for us to think also about, you know, intercultural communication that doesn't, necessarily have the anchor in in one normative space that is the u.s right so what does it mean to do intercultural conflict scholarship between india and pakistan and there's so much work out there and what does it mean to op- build those bridges and, and and make those opportunities possible so I, there's a lot i guess it's just a question of how do we as com scholars anchor that right because there's a rich area of work in South Asian studies in English, right? In so their departments of South Asian studies and so on and so forth. I guess for COM, this will mean looking out for what communication departments or programs are in the region and, and how this can kind of grow that, that discussion. And we're so grateful that you all edited this special issue in an NCA journal. I'm particularly proud of the fact that we were able to organize and publish this special issue. I think it's fantastic. So thank you, Shanak and Shrivi, for joining me today. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed what I thought was a stimulating and engaging discussion of the articles in this special issue of the Journal of International Intercultural Communication. You can visit the NCA podcast page at natcom.org slash podcast for a link to all of the articles. They've been made free for your access through the end of 2020. And we'll have a link on the podcast page for anybody interested in looking at any of these articles as well as the introductory material. So be sure to visit us at natcom.org slash podcast. And as always, thanks for listening to Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. In NCA news, in response to the murder of George Floyd and in solidarity with the protests happening across the nation and around the world, the NCA officers issued an open letter to the NCA membership. The letter says in part, we write to express our profound sympathies and condolences to the family and friends of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, and to recognize that many members of NCA are feeling like we are, angry, hurt, sad, and disgusted. We write to tell you that we are with you 
and recognize the incredible heartache so many are feeling in these times. We want you to know that our emotions, too, are raw and that we want to make a useful contribution as your elected leaders. At this moment, in addition to other necessary self-care practices, we encourage action and using your experience as communication experts as a response to any grief, helplessness, anger, resentment, loneliness, and frustration you might be feeling. Communication is central to both how we are learning about these events as well as how to help heal our society. In addition to the officer statement, the NCA Diversity Council released a statement urging NCA members to engage in positive action in the pursuit of social justice. The Diversity Council statement says, in part, in place of issuing hurried statements, NCA's Diversity Council is calling for strategic articulations of concrete action steps designed to incite measurable systemic change in our discipline. Coupled with concrete action steps, we are calling for articulations of accountability and culpability if said actions are not completed on a specified timeline. As a council, for example, we are less interested in hearing our colleagues and myriad NCA constituencies recommit to white self-reflexivity and or social justice, yet more interested in how strategic action will amount to anti-racist praxis, thereby rendering our discipline more humanizing and inclusive for people of color and less susceptible to white supremacy. You can read both statements in full on the NCA website at natcom.org. In other NCA news, the newest video in NCA's Concepts in Communication series addresses deception and deception detection. In the video, Nora Dunbar, professor in the communication department at the University of California at Santa Barbara, defines deception, explains whether law enforcement professionals are better than others at detecting deception, identifies cues for detecting deception, and describes a video game developed to teach law enforcement professionals how to better detect deception. Be sure to check out the other releases in NCA's video series to learn about microaggressions, identifying fake news, digital activism, and speech anxiety. You can watch all of the NCA Concepts in Communication videos on NCA's YouTube page. And listeners, I hope you'll tune in for the July 9th episode of Communication Matters, featuring Professor Robin Means Coleman of Texas A&M University. Professor Coleman is the author of Horror Noir, Blacks in American Horror Films from the 1890s to the Present a book that was made into an award-winning documentary film in 2019. Be sure to tune in to this episode to learn more about how Black people have been depicted in American horror films, what this says about race in America, and the horror genre in American film. Be sure to engage with us on social media by liking us on Facebook, following NCA on Twitter and Instagram, and watching us on YouTube. And before you go, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to listen in as we discuss emerging scholarship, established theory, and new applications, all exploring just how much communication matters in our classrooms, in our communities, and in our world. See you next time. Communication Matters is hosted by NCA Executive Director Trevor Perry Giles and is recorded in our national office in downtown Washington, D.C., the podcast is recorded and produced by Assistant Director for Digital Strategies, Chelsea Bowes, with writing support 
from Director of External Affairs and Publications, Wendy Fernando, and Content Development Specialist, Grace Hebert. Thank you for listening.